Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Neil Robinson. I'm the Head of University Services. And today I have with me um, Professor Julie Willis, the Dean of the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning. Uh, welcome, Julie. Thank you, Neil. And thank you for, for taking the time out of your schedule to talk to me. It's the first time I've done one of these. It's the first time we've we've tried to do uh, a podcast for university services staff and, and professional staff more broadly um, within the university, hopefully. And um, I thought um, of, of asking you to, to talk a little bit about your uh, role as a dean and your career as an academic here at the University of Melbourne. Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, I'm an academic who's who's sort of stepped into a role like this and I, I still think of myself as an academic with just a slightly larger administrative ro- role than I might have under other circumstances. But a dean's role is is as the titular head of a faculty or a, some of them are heads of graduate schools in the university. Uh, so we take a lot of responsibility. We're the key linchpin between uh, the university at large and the faculty. So we see a lot. Um, John Mackenzie once described it as, as like standing in the middle of a battlefield with the opposite side's flag facing that you copped it from both sides as a dean. That's not quite true, I think. Um, but we have a, a really key role in the university um, because the way the university is structured and the way it's funded, academic divisions or faculties uh, are where the money comes in largely um, and then it goes out to uh, other other areas of the university because they're more logically done um, in aggregate rather than by, for each academic division. Uh, so we have this position where we're both serving the wider university uh, and serving our own faculty and the disciplines within that and the students within that. It's a very privileged position. So other times when you you sort of struggle with that staggering both the sort of corporate view the institution as a whole view that you need to retain as well as then bringing your own personal faculty disciplinary hat into the Absolutely. There are times in which things have to be done for the university that are actively detrimental to the interests of the faculty. Now, there are extremes, but um, sometimes you have to compromise in one area because you know for the greater good that's what needs to happen. Um, it's As a dean, you are partisan, you are defending your faculty, um, but there are times in which you have to put that aside and realise that it's for the good of the university. And ultimately, many academics are actually driven by this, this want and desire to have the best outcomes for the students who come and work with us. So when it's driving something about that's good for the university, even though that in the short term it may not be great for ABP, then that's the decision that has to be made. But it's something that's difficult. Sometimes you're going back to your colleagues in the faculty and having to sell something you're not yeah. so happy about, but you have to do it. And what's the relationship like with the other deans? And But how does everybody get on and, and how do you arrive at a kind of collective view about things? Well, we do have a series of formal and informal forums in which the deans get together. So uh, the provost convenes um, a regular meeting in which we attend. The vice-chancellor has a regular lunch with us. Uh, we're in meetings together on a regular basis. But we also make sure that we cultivate an informal network. Uh, we have lunch together on a regular basis before academic board. Uh, and we discuss issues um, that are of concern to all of us. And, of course, there's the 
discussion that's going on outside of that. It's really important to work together as a cohort. It's it's not about ganging up or doing anything like that, but it's sharing information. And sometimes there are things that one faculty is doing and which others can learn from, and it's really helpful. Uh, and so we know the benefits of that. Getting on with your fellow deans is really important, it, it, and it's very important for the university. It's like have, having good relationships with all the sections of the university, because if you have a good relationship, you can have both the easy conversations and the hard ones. And I've known you for a while since I worked in in ABP, which I can't remember how long ago that is now, but it is a while. Um, so, so maybe into the sort of academic life of being an academic, because it's the start of semester one, lots of students around, lots of excitement, lots of buzz. It's one of the best times of year to be yeah. around the university. But at the same time, We've just been through grant submissions, applications, and I think you've recently been completing a book. Yes. How do you balance all of that? Uh, with difficulty is the answer. I'm, a, I'm somebody who values my academic background very strongly, and so I still teach and I still research. I have active research po- projects. I have PhD students, and I do all the work as a dean as well. And I have a family and children and all of those kind of things. It's, it's a matter of prioritising things. Um, I find in my situation, I actually have to speak to fellow academics and I have to understand what they are doing. So as a dean, I think I find it personally very important to walk the walk and talk the talk. Um, and they know that I do these things and they I get a lot of feedback saying, this is great that you're still teaching. It's terrific. You're still researching. You're still one of us. Um, you understand what we're doing. And so that becomes really important. But for any academic, there are kind of three parts to their jobs, their teachers, their researchers and their administrators. And that can come into conflict we're about to flip over from the researcher into the teacher just at this moment. And the excitement and the anticipation of what the semester is about to bring is great. So for a professional staff cohort that, that's, that's not necessarily as connected to the kind of teaching and research mission of, of the university or uh, on a day-to-day basis, um, what would be a kind of a message that you'd like to, to, to kind of say to, to university services about understanding that challenge of, of being an academic? Well, I think it's timing is one of the often things that people get confused about. What they don't realise is that academic might have spent 15 hours preparing a lecture and they've got to give it and it's all very, very time bound. And so that the question that's come from a professional staff member is naturally waiting because the priority is to deliver that content to the students at the time in which it's scheduled. This very little else you can do about that. You can't defer the lecture to answer the query. So as an academic, often the the time scale of what you're dealing with and when you can get to queries is much longer than what it might be for someone whose whole job it is to do this. So I, I frequently, I had a discussion this morning for someone saying, oh, it's not urgent. I'd just like you to look at it. I said, but when do you mean? Because for me, not urgent is I can do it next month. And he went, oh, no, tomorrow would be good. Okay, so now we've got to the point where I understand what your time frame is because mine's entirely different. I'm often working on things that a year in advance. Uh, and so being a bit clearer sometimes, but also understanding that they're not just trying to ignore you. They have a mountain in front of them and they're constantly dynamically prioritising to get through it. So I think sometimes we feel that 
um, we're a bit vague in in saying we need this by a particular date because we try and appreciate how that is going to be received at the other end. But is what you're saying um, that that being a bit clearer could be helpful? Well, it, it's a, a very fine line um, because lots of dates can shift around. I think it's dangerous when you start to say, well, put the deadline really early so that they'll get it done and we have enough time to do it because they'll find out and they'll push it off. And so it, it should be a dialogue if it can be. Is it possible for you to do it by this time? If not, come back and talk to me and I, I we can see what can be worked out because hard deadlines, you know, I've got colleague academics who will just say, ah, oh, it comes in the middle of this, can't possibly do it, so I'll just ignore it. Instead of going back to say, do you realise what else is going on? Perhaps can I do it 24 hours later or can I just do it into next week? And often the answer is, yes, we can manage that. And it actually improves the whole likelihood of the task being completed, but it builds understanding on both sides. So just taking you sort of into that work and and life as an academic, what excites you the most or what's the thing that, is it giving a lecture or is it uh, publishing a paper, or is it getting a grant, or or is it uh, agreeing a budget? Um, what, well, not agreeing a budget. You... <laughs> I don't know that that's my favourite area. Um, look, there is the, these points of frissons of excitement. I I I love standing up and lecturing. I'm you know I'm raving on about my favourite subjects, uh, but the the best time in teaching is when you, the light goes on in the students' eyes and they sort of go aha and you know that you've played a, a really important part in that. It's great when you make a discovery in terms of research and again that aha moment. I'm happiest when my hands are covered in paper dust and I'm in an archive and I'm not dealing with anything other than my research and it's it's just great fun. Um, so the, these are points of excitement and great sat- deep satisfaction about what you're doing and what you're, you're actually imparting and how you're having impact on people. There'll be other moments that are more Dean-related that are the same thing, where you're handing an award to someone, you're recognising what they're doing. They're points in which you go, this is fantastic, this is the greatest job in the world. For those of you that can't see, because only me can see actually, um, you're, you're, you're using your hands uh, as you're describing this. So clearly it's it's where you get a lot of passion from for, for the work that you do. And we've got cables all over and I'm just a bit nervous that one of the cables is going gonna, is gonna to go. Um, but tell me about lecturing, I, I, um, because I had the opportunity to, to talk to a group and, and, and after an hour I was exhausted. Um, and it's it's not like a lecture. It's not to hundreds of people. But I, I suspect there's, there's still a sense of you have to get yourself ready and up and then you do it. And then afterwards it's, ah, oh, OK. And and then the sort of... But, but sometimes we ask our staff, you know, our academic colleagues to do two or three lectures in a day. So how on earth do you do it? How do you get yourself up into that space? And you said, you know, you see the light go on. Um, how do you get that moment well, teaching is a performance, and performance often requires an audience, and you, you derive energy from that. But it is a really exhausting thing. Uh, when I was more junior academic, it would take me the day to, you know, I'd go in and give the lecture, and it would take four and five hours to come off the, the adrenaline drop that you yeah. get afterwards. You would be so tired. You just really couldn't do anything afterwards for quite some time. 
And while I'm a sort of veteran lecturer now, um, I still know, I can still feel that and there'll be this dip afterwards in which takes recovery time. It's really, really hard when you're having to do multiple lectures on the same day and you go home shattered, to be frank. Um, and that's because it's performance. It's like standing on the stage at the MTC and giving a performance for an hour, after which you go, it's... I'm kind of spent now. I put all of my energy and all of my adrenaline into this performance and now I can relax and stop. Um, there, There is a, a sort of you know, trailing effect from this. But what you aim to do, of course, is get that content to the student as efficiently as possible in an exciting way, in a way that they get the passion that you, you have for your subject. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes the subject's not that exciting, but you try. So who's kind of inspired you in your career? Is, is there somebody that sort of stands out that you you can say either this person or, or in this situation or, or, or even this book or text or something what, that, that, that kind of really um, made that connection for you and have, have, have been maybe a point of reference back that's kept you going through the tougher times? Well, I've got lots of people who I consider mentors and um, have really had big influence on my life. And um, it's been, there've been moments in which they've just pulled me aside and said, why don't you think about this? Or have you done that? So it's, it's actually, as an academic, it's pretty easy to get intimidated by the people who are around you because they're all mostly really smart and they do incredibly amazing things. So if you're seeing someone perform, you're often sort of measuring saying, oh, could I be as good as that? So it's actually, it's not the sort of seeing the leading light. It's when someone you really respect pulls you aside and says, hey, that was great or you should go for this or you've got great potential here. All of that makes an enormous difference I like to say that academics are a bundle of neuroses who are at heart perhaps not as confident as they may appear. So it's when you get that confidence boost of someone saying, you can do this, you go, oh, okay, I can do this, and you go on to do bigger and better things. So I've had a number of people do that to me, and it's been incredibly important. So that's a really good point, because how do we kind of engender that in our, our workforce within the university with colleagues, um, the vice chancellor has, has talked about diversity and diversity being really important as a as a ambition for him and for the university. Is is there a connection there, and and how can we use that to to kind of get that message at the right time to to make a difference? I, I think we actually have to think of things in positive terms instead of negative terms, and that that can be seen in a whole lot of different ways. So encouraging. Ways. Yeah, so if you see someone doing something great, don't just say to yourself, oh, that's great. Go and tell them that it's great. Go and say, hey, I think this is fantastic. Call out where you can see it and pay it forward. So if someone has treated you well, think about who you can influence and who you can give a hand up to and and just be that life-changing moment for them. Um, it takes a little bit of time. It takes a little bit of thought, but that that's the the investment that's worth making. I have people coming back to me saying, you really changed my life when you said, and I'm thinking, I don't even remember saying it. But... For them it was... For them it was life-changing. But find the moments where you just turn around and say, it's the simplest thing in the world to say, to compliment someone. Hey, that's great. Well done. It will mean the world to them. It probably took half a second for you to say. 
So in terms of diversity in the university, for us to be a robust institution going forward, we absolutely need to be a diverse institution. We need to welcome talent wherever it is and we need to look creatively at what talent is. People have talents. They are smart. They can give great things to us and that together we can achieve amazing things. But we can't start from a deficit position. We can't go, oh, well, you're... X, I don't know that we could accommodate that or that's you're just a bit different, I'm not sure. If we're all the same as an institution, we're not going to we're not going to be in the position that we need to be in five or ten years' time. We will have stayed in exactly the same position. So it's essential for us to think differently about who we engage with and think about what they can do rather than what they can't do. And if they, there's no one done it before, then find a way. There's so many solutions to what might appear to be problems. It just seems appropriate to do it. It might take a little bit of extra time or a little bit of extra thought, but in the same way as giving a compliment to someone, it might be life-changing. What's holding us back? What kind of stops us taking a risk or or making that comment and the engagement that that represents or trying something new or, or taking a risk even? Well, I think it's really easy to think of, people think of, but they're the rules, aren't they? Mm. And they they extrapolate off what the rules actually are and they make assumptions about rules. So if no one's ever done it in a different way, they go, oh, no, 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 we don't, that's not the way we do it around here. Um, I come from a faculty where creativity is very valued and so we're constantly having to think of solutions to problems where there may not be parameters, there might be all sorts of moving parts to it and to come to a solution that we know will work or at least we can try out. Um, I I think um, I like to sort of challenge people about the rules because they're often not actually there on paper. Um, they're often based on assumptions. And if you say, well, let's let's think about this differently, you can often find a solution. And by goodness, if the rule is stupid and it is written down, can't we change it? We've oh, probably yeah, got yeah. the opportunity to change them because we kind of set them. It's one of the reasons that I've, I've actually enjoy being in a position of relative power is that I can change stupid rules. I think that's really inspiring because, as you say, often we, we just accept things with the best of intentions yeah. um, without necessarily questioning and or at least asking why. Um, so I think if we can kind of lift our horizon and perhaps start asking why more, that will start to encourage others to, to say, well, this just doesn't make sense. So just simply following what we've always done isn't necessarily going to make a change. Yes, and, and the world's constantly changing around us. So we actually have to have our structures and procedures fit for purpose in the world we are at this moment in time. No one would want to be back in the 1950s. So we have to think of this as a dynamic thing. What do you think the challenges for for the university are in terms of embracing a diversity agenda? It's International Women's Day. What are the things that that we really should be focusing on? Um, Are are there a couple of things that perhaps are the headline things um, or, 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 or perhaps even more broadly? Well, I mean, I think that gender diversity is an issue within the university. I I don't think that there's anyone arguing back against that. And I I think it would be good to see greater gender diversity. I'm fond of quipping, if you can't get it right for 50% of the population, you're going to struggle with the rest of, I hate to say, categories of diversity because it shouldn't be a categorisation. But 
It's something that's not fast to fix. Mm. Uh, we don't just go and fire a whole series of people because they don't fit a category. This isn't about categories. It's about making sure that the opportunity is available for people, no matter where they come from and how they identify, uh, and to make it a place that they want to work. We also have to be cognizant that our decisions on a daily basis, the small decisions we make, can have a very big impact to the whole of the institution. So when we're recruiting, for instance, we need to look at um, our shortlists and make sure that we're not just trying to appoint people like us, Mm. that we are actively looking for people who've done things a bit differently or who are a bit different and say, say to ourselves, well... It's really hard because we don't know that we're we're doing that sometimes, do we? Well, you, it, it's well worth sort of calling Challenging out and, unconscious yeah. bias and to reflect on whether you're doing. Everybody has bias. Everybody has moments in which they go, "Oh, I think this," but if you're cognizant of it in yourself, you're probably less likely to do it. Uh, and you should be saying, "Why not? Why can't we do this?" Our student body is a very, very diverse student body and it's critical at the university. They can look at the powers that be in the university, the people they engage with, and see something that they can identify with. Something. It doesn't have to be everything. And to understand that it's a place that they, they, whoever they are, and this goes for all our staff, are welcome. I think that this links really well and closely to the conversation that the Vice-Chancellor started around the purpose of the university, both as a sort of mirror up to broader society and, and talking in the way we have been around diversity. You know, what is our responsibility to show, not just to students, but to broader society, that it is possible to have a, a kind of a, 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 an institution and, and a way of doing things that that is something to aspire to, um, but also the role that we can have on in influencing society more broadly. Well, like it or not, as an institution in the Australian society, we are expected to be progressive and to be thought leaders in areas where we can't be seen to be conservative and retrograde. Um, So we have a responsibility to reflect what society mores are at the time, but also to think about how we can be pushing that on. We should be best practice. In fact, we're expected to be best practice. So we have to live up to that. And I don't think we always are best practice. That's a challenge. That's a challenge for us in lots of areas of operations. It does provide us with um, that, that sort of aspirational this is somewhere where we can go and we can make a difference. Yes. So that's exciting. Exciting times ahead. Exciting times ahead, but, you know, it'll take some work. Well, if everybody's committed to, to, to putting that effort in and, and doing the work, then it is an, an exciting time and, and opportunities are ahead. Yes. So now on to some of the kind of quick-fire questions um, at the end. Um, what um, What's your favourite place on campus, apart from, of course, uh, the, the Glyn Davis building or the Melbourne School of Design building? Well, Neil, I don't drink coffee, so coffee shops are not not usually my hunting ground, but um, there are plenty of really fabulous places in this university. I love the South Car Park. Yeah, very significant 
um, structure in the university. Uh, I love the remnants of the system garden. I think the bow repair pool is fabulous. But my favourite places in the university are those little byways between all the buildings that have been so beautifully landscaped mm. and that you just think, this is fantastic. I feel comfortable. The, the flowers are out. Whoever has chosen this has done really, really well. They're my favourite places. We were looking at the student precinct designs yesterday and they've tried to recreate those laneways between the buildings and the spaces in that new student precinct to, to kind of almost mirror the existing campus but in this new well, not new corner, but evolving corner of the campus bounded by Swanson Street and Grattan Street. So that's that's exciting. We're on the right tracks there then. Well, I think it, uh, the idea of what the campus feels like is really important and have it all stitched together is really important as well. The architect's starting to speak here. So um, I mentioned books before, uh, a, a book that's had a big impact on, on your life, either career-wise or, or more broadly. I have to say the the book that's had most recent impact is Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe, um, which, if you don't know it, is where he's gone back to look at the accounts from early white settlers in Australia to find evidence of what Aboriginal culture, building and agriculture um, was at that moment of colonisation. And it is really, really extraordinary. I have to say I read the book and... I'm deeply embarrassed because I want to sort of say to the world at, at, at large, I didn't know, I didn't know, this. I, sh- I should know. Mm. And so it's one of those books that you just go, everyone should be reading this one. You mentioned that at the, the leadership conference a, a couple of weeks ago. And in fact, the following day, I think there was a, uh, a review of it in the, in the Weekend Australian. So clearly lots of people are, are looking at that and learning from that. Um, so we'll 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 take that down as um, some some reading for for us as we go forward. On on to music. Our vice chancellor is a, a big fan of uh, ska uh, and two tone. I'm not quite sure what that means, but I I, I looked it up, uh, and and I can I can remember some of the bands that I would sort of associate with that. Um, but what's your favourite music? And um, is there a, a track that you would nominate as being a favourite track of yours? Well, lucky for the Vice-Chancellor, I'm a very big Scar fan my, myself. Uh, and for those who are listening, that they probably need to understand a little bit of what this these bands are. About. So we're talking about in the 80s, particularly in Britain, um, people are most likely to have heard of bands I was very like, young in the 80s. Oh, yes, of course you were. <laughs> um, bands like Madness. Yes, I uh, remember Madness. So yep. that... that it's probably the most famous band, but um, the Specials, the Selector, Bad Manners, uh, a whole series of them. There are bands in Australia that also um, follow this genre of music, which is Strange Tenants and No Nonsense. Um, so it was really big at a particular moment in time, but it, of course it sort of faded away and, and people don't know it unless they're really into it. Um, I think it's fantastic. It's quite political music mm. too, and it comes out at a time when Margaret Thatcher is sort of In Britain, yeah. has a very big impact. So um, when you listen to it, it's um, it's got that sort of drive to it. I guess the equivalent in Australia would be something like uh, Midnight Oil, the same kind of political positioning that was going on. But specials are great. The beat's great already had an argument with the Vice-Chancellor about which one's best. So let me push you just a little bit further. Um, you said you'd had a, a, a bit of an uh, exchange with the Vice-Chancellor about uh, bands and, and tracks, but so what would be your, the track that you would call out? Well, I've got to choose Scar if I've put my, nailed my colours to the mast and said I really like Scar. And I thought that perhaps what I should do is go more local. 
So I'm going to call out the Melbourne Scar Orchestra and I'm going to particularly call out their track Get Smart and there's some really good reasons for that. Not only are they a Melbourne band and they're pretty amazing, but the clip for that is filmed on campus. And I think Get Smart is appropriate for university, don't you think? It is. It's probably on the mark there, yeah. Julie, thanks for your time today. It's much appreciated. Thanks, Neil. It's been my pleasure.